Hello and welcome to the Travel Diaries podcast. I'm Holly Rubenstein. I'm a travel and entertainment journalist. And here each week, I'll be speaking to a very special guest about the seven chapters in their life's travel diaries. From their earliest childhood travel memory and the first place they fell in love with to their hidden gem and what's at the top of their travel bucket list. We'll be uncovering their adventures around the world and the travel experiences and destinations that have shaped their lives. Today, I'm joined by one of the most well-traveled people I've ever spoken to. Jeffrey Kent is the founder, chairman and CEO of the luxury travel company Abercrombie & Kent and a titan of the travel industry. Before researching and recording this episode, I didn't know that much about Jeffrey himself. And now, here in this intro, it's hard to convey what an extraordinary life he's led, but I'll give it a go. Raised in rural Kenya, Jeffrey said that his whole childhood was like a safari. He tells us about living among leopards and elephants and riding horses when he'd barely even learnt to walk. And from there, during a military career where he served in Bahrain, Oman, Yemen, Cyprus, Libya, Malta, he founded Abercrombie & Kent, a travel company best known for inventing the photographic safari, changing wildlife travel forever with the ethos, shoot with a camera, not with a gun. A born explorer, he's credited with pioneering experiential travel. So along with telling us about some of the 156 countries he's already visited, Jeffrey brings to life the experiences that he's had along the way and how we can best enjoy some of the world's most beautiful countries. We don't really touch on the fact that he's also a world-renowned polo player. He was a captain of Windsor Park's polo team alongside Prince Charles. Or that he took Prince Harry to Botswana after the death of Princess Diana and sparked Harry's love of Africa. But even so, this is still a long-haul feature-length episode because there was just so much to cover. It's a love letter to Africa and one that I hope you'll really enjoy. So let's get started. Here's Jeffrey. Jeffrey Kent, welcome to the Travel Diaries podcast. What a pleasure to be speaking with you today. How are you? I'm very well. I've just flown in from Brazil and um, not jet lagged and ready to go. Oh, wonderful. So where are you now? In Monaco, my home in Monaco. And the weather's beautiful here too. Oh, I'm so jealous. It's not so beautiful here in London. Yeah. Where are you coming from in Brazil? From Florianopolis in the south. And uh -huh. we have a beautiful home there. And I've just bought a ranch for the family, and so which has two rivers on it. So I think I'm all set for the future. <laughs> whatever that whatever that may bring. I've traveled so many miles, as, as I'm sure you know. One safe place to go to if something awful ever happened. Well, so, so in preparation for today, I've been reading about your incredible life. I mean, there are a few stories that I have read that are so captivating in terms of the amount of travel that has taken place over the years. How many countries have you visited, would you say? I think about 156 countries, 157. Yes, about that. I mean, so I've got a few more to go. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm so excited to start uncovering your travel diaries. We'll be just covering the tip of the iceberg. So we'll start with chapter one, mm -hmm. and that is your earliest childhood travel memory. What would that be? I was born in Zambia when my, my parents were on a safari. So I started off on a safari, literally. Mm -hmm. And I was born in Lusaka General Hospital. And I was only there about a week because I got quite ill, quite sick. And my mother then flew me up. I don't know how she flew in those days. Got me back to Nairobi where I went into Gertrude's Garden Hospital, had a surgery and was fine. And so I grew up on a farm in Africa. So I was actually born in Zambia there to, just for a brief week and then came to our farm in the South Kinnikov, um, which is north of Lake Naivasha mm -hmm. in, in uh, Kenya. 
And that's where I grew up, in the most amazing childhood. I was born in 1942, so my father was away the whole time. He was fighting the war up in Abyssinia with the King's African Rifles. And I was alone with my mother on this farm, which was, I mean, we did everything. She built the roads, she built the water supplies, she built the house, she built everything. So my my memory was the farm. And we all grew up as wild Kenyan kids. You know, we, we never wore shoes. We rode horses from the age of three onwards, three or four. Mm. Um, road, my nearest neighbors were five to 10 miles away. So the only way to see them was get on a horse. I learned to speak Swahili before I spoke English. In fact, Swahili is really my first language. Really? Then I learned, uh, well, learning 300 people, 300 Europeans on this huge area. So we were surrounded, you know? Yeah. And I grew up with my African friends, all the young uh, children, and we all grew up together. We went, I went, of course, I went shooting at that age, age of seven or eight. I had a little air gun and I grew up, then I had a tutu, and then I. Got, got more advanced and had a 256 and then then, a, then a, eventually a bigger rifle but so that's how you grew up and so we had colobus monkeys throughout the garden uh, leopards came in at night um, elephants uh, just next door I mean uh, 400 yards where elephants would come plunging down buffaloes um, beautiful river called the Chania River so I learned how to catch trout as a, as a small kid and so well, it sounds blissful. That's how I grew up. I drove a Land Rover, he's about six or eight, with cushions mm-hmm. behind my back. And it was a brilliant, you know, such a nice way to grow up. And, and you felt so free that everything, I mean, it was amazingly free. You could do whatever you wanted. And so I suppose that's why I've always been such a, really a wanderer. You know, I've covered, I think, 18 million miles in travel because I've been traveling all of my life and yeah. never grew up like most people. I did a, a big... Uh, talk at the American school in St. John's Wood in, in London. And the, I had to tell them, these all these like 14, 15 year olds, how their life is, they're terrified, their parents of them going to the to, to go shopping um, because they may get hit by a car or, or something like that. Mm-hmm. But we grew up not having any of that. My dad would come back, so, sorry darling, I've just got to go and shoot this leopard because it's killing all the chickens. Okay, <laughs> see you later. So, so it was a completely different different background so anyway that's how I grew up it's interesting talking about the 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 freedom of living and growing up in the African bush because you then went to the most kind of regimented life of living in a military academy going to Sandhurst um, over here in the UK so how did that contrast feel well there's a big story in in between right you must connect the two so I grew up totally totally free ill-discipline, no shoes, and I had my own business as a very young man. I made elephant hair bracelets. I bought all the hairs from the game department, of all the elephants in it, having to, to kill because they'd been surrounding people's land and everything like that. Yeah. And so I, so, I, so I got all those tails and I made them into bracelets and I had a big business, aged about 15. In fact, I made more money than my dad. Huh. And so actually I started by motorbike. And I bought one motorbike, then I bought a second motorbike, and then I hid them in the forest called the Bundu at the school. I was at the Duke of York School in Nairobi. I hid them, and it would creep out, get on the bike, roar through the bushes, and into Nairobi, all right? And, of course, I went to the local girls' high school, and I had a girlfriend who got on the bike, and uh, the headmistress of the school <laughs> saw me, reported me and my bike to the headmaster at the Duke of York School. He called me in and said, I'm great friends of your father and mother but I'm going to have to expel you. I won't do it in front of the whole school. You just will not come back. 
So I had two A-levels. I was getting four A-levels. So I had a scholarship to Brasenose College, Oxford, and I was going into Dutch Shell Company, right? So this was a huge hit to my mom and my dad. And I couldn't care less. I, I was the least concerned. So my father was impossible to live with on the farm. And so one day I got, told my mom, I've got a shell map, and I am off to South Africa. She, she said, what on? Got two motorbikes. I'll take one of them. And I'm going to drive all the way from Nairobi to Cape Town. About 5,000 miles by the time you go here and go there. How old were you at this time? I was 16. Wow, right. 16. And had a map. And I bought some travel bag in, in, in Nairobi, sort of a sleeping mattress. I got extra cushions. I got some biltong, dried meat. Got some raisins. My mum said, eat lots of raisins and biltong. Then you don't have to eat. And I said, bye. And off I went to, to Cape Town on my motorbike. It was an amazing story. I became the first person in the world ever to do it, unplanned, unprovoked. It took one day of planning. I fell off at a place called Tet into the Zambezi River um, and was there for about a month with all these uh, animals coming in and the local tribes. Then I picked up by the Rhodesian Army Patrol. It took me to then Salisbury. Uh, and then I finally got to Cape Town. And uh, that's when my dad said, come back. I, by this time, I got smart. I knew I was not going to drive the motorbike back again because it was so dangerous. So yeah. I made some more money. I sold it to sold the story to the Cape Argus. Made enough money. Came back on a cruise ship. Met my dad. He took me to the Mombasa Club and he said, "I have a career for you." And I said, oh, "What's that?" My dad was a terrible sales guy. My mum was <laughs> dad terrible. He said, "Here, you're going to a brilliant place in England. It's called the Royal Military Academy, Santos." You can shoot as much as you want. You can play polo. You can ride horses. But And I said, well, maybe I don't want to go. He said, too late. You're booked. You go in two weeks. And so in two weeks, I was on a troop plane, landed in Libya for refueling. And then we landed in England at Lynham Airport. I was taken off by a big Bedford 4x4, shoved in the back. By, didn't know one person in England, not a single person, nobody. Mm. Went off, went into basic training at Purbrine, passed the Royal, passed all the examinations for Santos at Devizes, Westminster for a young officer, and find myself at 17 at the Royal Military Academy Santos. Unbelievable. Ha- having, oh. having had that freedom going on that motorcycle trip, I mean, I'd like to circle back to that just quickly. Yeah. I mean, mm. what, an, what an extraordinary, what was the route, first of all, that you took? Well, I went, it's such a good route. You, you get a map, or right? a shell map, and, you know, you think of all these uh, Google Maps today. Yeah, you didn't have a mobile phone to do the, the planning no, for you I last got, minute. No, I got no shell map. Got it the right way around, you know, got the motorbike, turn and go, okay, put it on the front. I never wore a helmet, by the way. It was very sissy to wear helmets in Kenya. Nobody would wear a helmet. So I put the helmet on the front because you had to by law. And then I had it there on that. And off I went with a man. I turned right, went towards Mombasa, made a right, took off, hit the very bad road. And I fell off within about 10 miles. It had a huge sand drift. The river had been flooded, hit the bike, and the bike fell on my right arm and burned oh. the whole right arm. Oh my God! So I got so I got into Arusha and I went. I turned into a farm and saying, "Please, would you take care of me? Please don't call my mum and dad. I work on the farm." So I worked for a month there, and she nursed me and got it all better. When it was better, I got on the bike, and then I was much more careful then. And then I went off. I went by all the way through Tanganyika, Tanzania, all the way to the south. Then I made then I made a right into Nyasaland. Made another right down to Blantyre, where my mother had arranged for me to stay with the governor of Nyasaland, which was super. So I pulled into government house, stayed in Nyasaland. <laughs> thought, wow, this is nice. And, and remember, I was going through a really dangerous period. This was when all the African leaders were being 
were being locked up. This was, you know, Hastings Banda was in jail, put there by the governor general who I was staying with in the Anzalan. So he said, yeah, you've got to be really careful. Now you're going to Mozambique, right? Called Portuguese East Africa. Mm-hmm. So I then made a, I then made made a I made a bit of a right, then I made another uh, made a left, and then I went down towards the river. Got to the river, and to get across the river, there was a ferry. But on the ferry, how did you get across it? They said you got to go up these planks. Is it a plank and a motorbike fully loaded? They said yes. I said what am I going to do? They said stay there or come. I said oh no, and so I re- I revved up this side and went and bounced along the plank. And just made the ferry, right? Uh-huh. Oh, that was good. But then I had to get off the other yes, side. Yes. And the ferry's going like this. The river's going with this. Crocodiles everywhere. Bom, bom, bom. And I couldn't rev it up and get any speed. Halfway down, I fell off. With the crocodiles. With the stuff. And they all pulled me out. I couldn't move the bike. It got rust. And I stayed there for over a month. They gave me bananas. They gave me fish. And eventually the Rhodesian Army Patrol picked me up, put me in the back of their big, huge army truck and took me to Salisbury where I had the whole thing mended and then I took off and that's where I stayed for my first night in a luxury hotel again owned by a friend of my mother and father an eight-story luxury hotel in Salisbury called the Ambassador Hotel. And if you hadn't have fallen off the ferry then maybe you wouldn't have had that taste for luxury travel. I never had that before. This is amazing. I've been so rough, just eating raisins and, and, and bananas and this, and then suddenly this sweet. I'd never been in a hotel in my life. And that's why this is amazing. Then, I, then it was easy. Then I coasted all the way down. South Africa was easy. Hard top roads. I went to Durban first and then, then made a right and then went down the wild coast all the way to Cape Town. When I arrived triumphantly at a very close friend of my mother's, their house, and they took me in for a month or two while I hmm. sorted myself out, then, then, then back home. Absolutely extraordinary. <laughs> so chapter two then, Jeffrey, yeah, okay. is the first place that you fell in love with. Well, you know, I think you fall in most things when you're a child, and I fell in love with the Maasai Mara. The Maasai Mara today known as the Maasai Game Reserve. In those days, there were no game reserves. There were no national parks. There's nothing. So I grew up in complete wilderness. My dad was in the King's African Rifles. We had all the army trucks and cars and camps. And he would, every holidays, he would take me off or time when he had holidays. And I'd say to my dad, where are we going, dad? And he said, somewhere where you can't drink the water. I wow, that's exciting. You can't <laughs> drink the water. Nobody has been there. He said, exactly. <laughs> but we will take our own water. I said, yay. And so off we went. I love that. He instilled that adventure in you right from the very beginning. Yeah, I didn't want him to say, oh, you, nowadays say, oh, it's a water fresh to drink. Oh, I'm going to bring my own bottle of water in my private plate. I'm like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> and, so, and so I went down the Masama, and, and so this is where I grew up with animals. You know, we, I mean, it was amazing. We lived in a lovely camp, you know, pretty rough army camp. Mm-hmm. Went after went, went sh- shooting in the evening for guinea fowl and and uh, because we had to eat it was no, nothing to eat otherwise so we shot for the pot you know and so that's where I grew up and fell in love with the Maasai Mara and then of course when I became just before I went to Santos I now shot for the first time and the last time but I shot a buffalo and elephant but it reminded me so much of my horses I vowed that I would never do that again um, mm-hmm. but it sort of was a, a passage of life really. And then, of course, it was made into game reserve. Then I come back, I do the army. I come back, I start Abercrombie Kent with my mother, mum and dad. 
And my first place where I put one of my luxury cabs, the first one in the world, think how many luxury cabs are today, but that was number one. And so <laughs> that got me started in business. So I started as a kid, started my first mobile camp. The first campsite I ever went to was in Masai Mara. And then, of course, I developed my business. And, of course, the Great Migration has to be one of the most incredible sites ever, 1.5 million uh, wildebeest, you know, 800,000 zebra, 200,000 uh, uh, Tommies and Grants Gazelle. What an amazing site. And so that's when I built my next camp called Kichwa Tembo, uh, which was near the Maasai Mara. And today I have Olanana, which is a beautiful lodge on the river, and with the Jeffrey Kent Suite where, where I stay and all my friends can stay, it's a beautiful place. And so that was it. Then my mum and dad died. My dad died first. And I said to my mum, I'm going to bury him in the Maasai Mara. Mm. And so because so I, I bought a big lot of land. Do you remember the movie Out of Africa? And you had that amazing breakfast with Meryl Streep. And, uh, you remember that one? Mm-hmm. Okay. That's just near there. I bought the whole site actually on the edge of the Rift Valley. And that's where I buried my mum and my dad. I'm buried there. And um, I always go there when I'm there, have a cup of tea, and I can think, well, they're here, the animals all around, they're watching everything. Surrounded by so much beauty. And hopefully it'll be a long, long time before I die. I've still got, you know, many still young, still in my teenage years, but there's a few Mm. years to come. (laughs) But uh, that's how I think, anyhow. So that's where I'll be buried, and hopefully my children will be buried there. And so, so it's from the start of my life to the end of my life. So that's the area I really, really love. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because you, you talk about growing up in Kenya. The Maasai Mara is quite a contrast in a way to the Abadares where you lived, isn't it? In the sense yes, that the landscape yeah. and everything is, they're not that comparable really, are they? No, not at all. But how do you know the Abadares? You, have, you, have you been to the Abadares or not? I have, yes, yeah. Yeah, you um, said it with such confidence. I said, hmm. I um I did one trip around Kenya where I went to um that stayed in Nairobi the Abadares at Abadare Country Club. Oh, okay. Um okay. and then um down to the Masai Mara and Lake Navasha actually and Lake Nakuru as well. So it was a lovely trip. So you were I grew up, you know, we grew up at eight thousand nine hundred feet, just under nine thousand feet high in the Abadares. Um that's why yes. we, we had frost and ice outside. And then, of course, my dad and mum always wanted to be, go down to warm areas when they could. Mm-hmm. And the, the nearest place with wilderness was the Maasai Mara. I mean, it was quite mm-hmm. quite close in those days. Mm-hmm. So that's why mm-hmm. we popped up and down the Maasai Mara between the two. And, of course, we went to the beaches, too. We went down to Diani and Malindi, where I still have a home in Malindi. That's another beautiful mm. place. The, Kenya beaches are beautiful. Lovely. I've never been to the beach oh. parts of Kenya, but, I mean, I've just seen photos, and they really look so – and not too developed either. Well, remember when I grew up, there was not one. There was one hotel, one called Jardini Beach Hotel. Not there was not another hotel. And in Melinda, there was one other called the Simbad Hotel, where we used to go and have drinks. But that was it. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah it was a wonderful way to grow up. The beach, the Masai Mara, uh, the Kenya Highlands, incredible. Yeah, wonderful. So, chapter three is the place where you learnt the most about yourself. Where would that be? Well, I mean, as you've heard from the story so far, it's been a pretty um, crazy, uh, out-of-control young man, right? Motorbikes, expelled from school, <laughs> first yeah. in Nairobi to Cape Town. Oh, I climbed Kilimanjaro twice during that period too, when I got back. I climbed Kilimanjaro twice. Just as you do. Yeah, as you do. Uh, 19,342 feet, I remember it very well. And then I went to Santa. So I'd done all of that before I was 17. What? I mean, that is it. When you reflect back on that, do you think, goodness, 
I had quite an extraordinary time. Yeah, and, and I talk to people today, and they, you know, you talk to people age 24, 25, and they say, oh, I'm just trying to find myself. I said, find yourself? I, you know, I've done all that and been to war and done this and done that, you know, done, done, a, <laughs> done a million things. So anyhow, so yeah, where I found myself, and actually um, I wish my dad was still alive today, but I really, really thank him for sending me to the Royal Military Academy Santos was one of the best, 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 best things anybody could do. And I, anybody listening to this program and they have a son that's out of control, send them. Actually, you can send a daughter too now. Send them to Santos. <laughs> it was a wonderful place. Discipline. I'll never forget arriving, you know, a little kid from Kenya. And the sergeant major was there, I was 17 years old. And the sergeant major put his nose right, you know, the guards brigade, put his nose into mine and said, you, sir, me, sir, and I, sir, you, sir. But there's one difference. You mean it, and I don't. Now, move it. <laughs> they did everything, uh, run. And so in those years, it was 17 years, it was tough. two years, uh, two years course. Uh, very, very tough. I think actually, to be honest, I think it was way tougher in those days than today. Mm-hmm. Um, and they really put you through it. I became, I did the parachute course there and learned, you know, jumped out of airplanes. That was fun. Um, but above all, you became a leader. You know, ask everybody, what does Santos do? Santos wants to make you a leader. That's it. And if you don't make it, they kick you out. And so you're always being pushed beyond your limits, you know, until you literally, oh, my God, I wish I could die. They say, well, die and then come back again because we don't want to waste the money we spend on you, but we want you to almost die. That would be good. And so, <laughs> so it was very tough. And that's where I learned for myself. I became a leader of men. I learned how to get over problems. And then, of course, my military career is amazing. You know, I went as a very young man. I, you know, I was commissioned at what? 1920. I then went to um, to Aden, where we still, you know, people still did. Uh, we went to North Yemen. Where we were fighting in those days the, uh, the 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 Russians and the Egyptians were in mm. North Yemen. Mm-hmm. And from North Yemen, I went to Oman, uh, where I served in the Jebel Al uh, Mountains there. And by the way, as a scientist with uh, officers to get inside, who then went on to become uh, Sheikh, uh, the ruler Kabus. Sheikh Kaboos, the ruler of Omar. So he and I were in Intake 29, Gaza Company, Royal Military Academy Santos, which is why I moved with another guy called Tim Landon into into Oman and Jebel al So I fought up there, rebels there for a bit, and had to walk all the way up. And then one day I got an amazing message, <clears throat> was would I go to the to to be the uh, meet my colonel and go to Malta to be the aide de camp to General John Frost? Because above all, he said, Jeffrey. You're not a very senior officer, but you are a really good polo player. And all we want to do is the army wants to beat the Navy at polo. And that reminds me of Sandhurst. Uh, Winston Churchill said the best passport anybody can have at the Royal Military Academy, Sandhurst, is a two-goal handicap. And by the time I left Sandhurst, I had a, by the time I arrived at Sandhurst, I had a two-goal handicap. So I was a good polo player. And so yeah. I arrived at Malta, and General John completely changed my life. I mean, I was ADC the most decorated British Army general ever, you know. He was an extraordinary leader, big, powerful, strong. He taught me you could never make a mistake. Detail was everything. He taught me that time spent in reconnaissance is seldom wasted. He taught me the key things of logistics. Every minute counts. You don't do it by five minutes. You do it by every minute. And so I learned all that background, which actually I put together and formed Abercrombie and & Kent. And, and as you say, all those different things that you learned while you were were there in the in the army you've you then put 
put into your business and your business execution. So can you tell me a, a bit about why, having been out in the in the army, you then decided to to form Abercrombie and Kent and what the kind of ethos and inspiration behind it really was? Well, I mean, uh, by the way, I learned how to wear shoes too. So. <laughs> <laughs> <In the> army. <laughs> yeah. Um, so period of time, basically in 1962, uh, Kenya got self-government and in, and um, all of us, all of us who had farms in the Kinnikop area, we had, we would, had, it was called compulsory purchase. They had to be taken over by the government, all right? And so our farm was gone. And my mum and dad weren't sure what to do. And they thought about going to Australia or going somewhere. And I said to my mum, my father was a great adventurer. He, he's one of the very first people to have ever driven from Nairobi to Nigeria before the war broke out. And the war broke out when he was halfway through that trip. And so I said to them, and we're talking about, and so, so what about a safari business? You know, we should do that. And um, they, they thought about it and said, that's a very good idea. And, well, they had the idea too. I mean, it wasn't my idea. I said, yeah, maybe I pushed it. Maybe they had the idea. I said, yeah, you should definitely do that. And um, we had to think of a name because we want to be top of the alphabet. Well, like a Google search today, we want to be top of the yellow pages, something with an A, you know. And so we came up with Aardvark, you know, double A. But yes. the logo would have been horrible. An anteater uh, walking along on the side of your door of your uh, safari truck wouldn't have been glamorous. <laughs> yeah. And so in the end, we came up with Abercrombie and Kent. And so that's the way Abercrombie was born. You know, and there were some Abercrombies in, in Kenya. Actually, our pilot was called Abercrombie. And so Abercrombie and Kent was born. And so even now, I get letters saying, um, oh, by the way, we are great friends of the Abercrombies. So we have to tell <laughs> politely, they never existed. And so, yeah, everyone at school um, wanted, just like today at school, you want to be a lawyer, you want to be an accountant, but those days, everybody wanted to be a professional hunter. I said, I can't go back to that. I've been to Santa's. And so I said to everybody, why doesn't people take... Uh, camera safaris. They should be taking photographic safaris. No, nobody wants to. Oh, it's sissy. You can't do that. I said, you know, I don't understand this. And so actually, I went ahead with it and did it. So I can't get to Kandani. And so I went big time into, into photographic safaris, came up with the slogan, shoot with a camera, not with a gun, and created the first luxury tent safari in the world, which had ice. And so I could take Fresh food and ice and caviar and butter and frozen champagne, just like I did for the general. And we had them on the river. We spent three nights in the camp. We had all of East Africa, Kenya, Tanzania, Uganda. We did 30-day safaris, and it was amazing. And the appetite was there, and, yeah, and the and business just grew. My dad, my dad ran the office, and my mom was a guide, and I was a guide. Mm -hmm. But I did I did that half time because I was still in the army and I came back in 1966 and then took over from my parents and so as a very young guy I had a business card printed which said Jeffrey Kent managing director I said proud of that card right trouble was I had nothing <laughs> no business no nothing so I used to sit outside the new Stanley Hotel and um, wait and see if there were any sort of in those days the richest people in the world were Texans. So I used to wait for a Texan to arrive. And I went up to them and said, had a big hat on, so sold him this great safari. And he kept on telling me throughout, said, well, how much is this going to cost? It'll cost $2,980. <laughs> and he said, looked at me and said, 
is that all? And I said to him, each. (laughs) (laughs) And so he said, fine. And so that's how I learned how to make a lot of money very quickly. And I told him the true story later. And he became (laughs) a great friend. But yeah, things were very difficult starting off. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels easier even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travellers just like I do. Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. Yeah. So let's move on now to chapter four, your all-time favorite destination. Where would you pick? Um, It's really difficult. There's so many brilliant places. You know, I've actually been to the North Pole. I've been to the actual South Pole itself, the actual South Pole. What was that like? Uh, It was a hairy trip, very hairy, very, um, yeah. I'll test you. How high, what is the altitude of the South Pole? It's higher than you'd think, isn't it? It's, yes, it, yes. It's significant. I, I, yes. I, let's see. Mm. Um, mm. mm. 5,000 feet? Mm. No. Mm-hmm. Nowhere near? Much higher? 10,000? Mm-hmm. Just about. 9,300 feet, I believe. All right. That, um, and, and it's just so weird <clears throat> because you think of it as such a flat surface yeah. in your head but actually the whole time that you're spending time there you're at altitude yeah the only time the only reason i know this is because i interviewed james cracknell for the podcast mm-hmm. who did a trek across the south pole well good for him i tell you i did a trek my way my own private plane <laughs> my <laughs> own private chef <laughs> i did it my way the Abercrombie <laughs> and Kenway. however it was still pretty tough because we did we did ice climbing we did uh, abseiling, we did. We, we visited the Emperor Penguins. It's an amazing oh. trip, and we're doing another one in December, twenty-two, 
And um, I'm going down, and my wife, Otavia, I'm going to kiss her goodbye. She's going to do it. And I'm going to see everybody. We've sold it out already, fully sold out. One of the last untouched frontiers, really. And by the way, more people have climbed Everest than have been to the South Pole. That's, That's so cool. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, favorite place. Um, <laughs> I, I think it's got to be probably Botswana still. I think Botswana, when I combine it, I grew up really in Botswana. I did a lot of my trips in Botswana and Mauritius. And as a kid, I went to Mauritius all the time. Beautiful place, beaches, the nicest people in the world, so pleasant. And of course, you know, my real favorite is Kenya, but we've dealt with that. Kenya, Maasai Mara, mm-hmm. but you know, that's my favorite. But next favorite, Botswana. Botswana and Mauritius. And Botswana, I first drove a truck down there in about the late 1960s when it was still Botswana land. I, there was a little hotel called Riley's Hotel. It had three bedrooms. There's a little grass strip. And that's where I fell in love with it. Completely wild. Nothing was there. Beautiful place. And so I kept on going there. Then I built camps. We have lovely camps there today. Chief's Camp on the Okavanga Island. Have you been there or not? Have you been to Okavanga? No, I've oh. never been to Botswana. I'd love oh, to. Oh, you have really missed out. I mean, no. That, call me. That is amazing. <laughs> and we have a Jeffrey Kent suite there. And I mean, you guaranteed almost, you spend three nights, we almost guarantee the big five in three nights. And all uh-huh. wild. You drive off the roads. You don't, you're not, not hundreds of people around you. You have the wild dog, painted dog there. It's an amazing place. Chief camp, probably the best camp in the whole world. Definitely. Really? Yeah, definitely, yeah. And then from then I built two more, Baines and Stanley camp in the Okavango. I built another camp in the Chobe, uh, the Chobe Lodge, uh, all under Sanctuary, a, a hotel brand called Sanctuary, Sanctuary Chief, Sanctuary Baines. And, um, of course, up near Chobe you have Victoria Falls and to do Victoria Falls. And, by the way, have you ever done the whitewater rafting down the Zambezi River? I've not, but my husband did, and they didn't tell their parents. <laughs> yeah, I tested my, my wife on our honeymoon, well, just about pre-honeymoon. I took her there and asked her to do the whitewater rafting beneath Victoria Falls. That is level five, and it's seriously hairy. I'm sure your husband fell off, right? Yeah, <laughs> yes, yeah, I think yeah. he did multiple I bet times. he did, yeah. And, and I'm sure he swam with the crocodiles until they pick you up. Lots of crocodiles there, too. But, <laughs> but that's, that's amazing. So to do Victoria Falls, Chobe... And, and Chiefs Camp, that's an amazing thing. Hopefully you've done, I think it's the second trip. Most people always go to Kenya first, Kenya, Tanzania, do all that. Um, then you do that. And then then you should go to Mozambique for barefoot luxury, which is lovely, the Bazaruta Channel. Or if you're the sophisticated type and say, oh, I've done that, I want to be spoiled, rotten, you go and you go to um, uh, you go to the one and only in Mauritius. Uh, Saint is my favorite. That's where I went as a, as a very young man. Learned how to dive there, learned how to windsurf there, and it brings back many, many memories. But that's probably my favorite. And by the way, the other good thing to do is chiefs is, is gorilla tracking in Uganda. And I started that off years ago. I did the first gorilla tracking trips in what, 1972, some, even before that, 69, yeah, a long time ago. Yeah, that was something that you really pioneered, wasn't it? It's, it's yes. amazing. Um, on this podcast, the final chapter is asking what's at the top of your bucket list. And um, it's one of the most popular answers is to go gorilla trekking. So really, that is something that you pioneered. And now 
celebrities all over the world. It's the one thing that they're hoping to do in their lives, which is incredible. Yeah, if you read my book, you know, it was all during the time Alan Root was a very close friend of mine. And he was at the Prince of Wales School. And Alan and I, he became the world's most famous uh, cinematographer. Sadly, no longer with us. I had a lovely talk with Alan. Uh, he was very sick for a while. We sent him and his family to the uh, to Antarctica on our ship as a gift um, because he, um, his children, and um, we loved him so much. And um, such a wonderful, funny guy. And I called him up. And he'd not be well. And so I said to him, hey, Alan, what's up? How are you? He said, Jeff, I'm afraid I'm on finals. He was a big pilot. I'm on finals. And I nearly cried. I did cry. He was such a great But he was the one who introduced me to gorillas long before Diane Fossey. And by the way, he introduced Diane Fossey to the gorillas, not the other way around. Mm-hmm. Diane Fossey wanted to see it. Alan Root took Diane Fossey and introduced it. So he was really the hero of the gorillas, actually. I wish he was alive today. But he was so modest, he never claimed that. But he was the one. And so then I had a huge argument with Dan Fossey, actually in Goma, in the, in the hotel down there the, at, uh, on the shores of Lake Kivu, because she said to me, I should not be taking tourists. I took one or two to see the gorillas because they should be protected from humans because we give diseases. They should only be watched by scientists and none of us should go there. I said, you know, you're wrong and you're right. But actually, I'm much more right than you are. Because if we don't bring tourists, they will not be there. And we had a huge argument. And I remember storming out, I mean, stormed out of the, out of the hotel. Yeah. Uh, because um, who was right? We were right. If we, had, we bring in $1,000 per person to watch gorillas. We've saved all those gorillas. Wendy, my one experiment there, we have 430 gorillas. If I hadn't done that, which is more than half the world's minded gorillas, so I'm a great believer, you know, we have Abercrombie Kent Philanthropy and we do a lot of work, a lot of work with that too. Mm. Which is so important now and, and it's something that just every year becomes more important to the traveller, doesn't it? We're caring so much more, we're so much more cognizant of the environment, our impact, our carbon footprint, uh, the effect of COVID on conservation. We're going to have to bear all of these things in mind when we make our travel decisions now. Exactly. Absolutely. So moving on to chapter five, that is your hidden gem, a place that you absolutely love that maybe the listeners wouldn't know too much about or wouldn't have visited. Oh, I was actually going to say my hidden gem is my wife, Otavi. (laughs) 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 Because she's the one, she's the one who travels me and all of my trips. Um, we plan these <clears throat> great adventures together on, on a, you know, just district home. Where do you want to go? What should we do? And we do anything. The Inspiring Expeditions by Jeffrey Kemp was all about money is not the object. You go where you want to go. And that's usually very expensive. And you do it the best, best way. Private planes, private everything. And so she and I came up with that idea. And we've done many great trips. You know, we've dived off. And by the way, these are my hidden gems, right? Mm-hmm. All part of it, right? but it's all part yeah. of the same story. Okay, so um, so we've been diving in Palau. If you're a diver, an amazing place to go. We took a helicopter to Base Camp Everest. Can you imagine landing at Base Camp Everest? So you can actually say you've been there. That what was, was it a, like? What did it? How did it feel to be there? Well, it was amazing. I mean, actually, I, I felt it was easier to breathe than I thought. You know, of course, you're not mm-hmm. top. There's a lot of refuse around the place, as I'm sure you've read. You know, which was a bit un. Uh, the helicopter flight up was amazing and actually yeah. circling around Everest was amazing. I, I remember that forever. So, yeah, that was great. We went to see the Komodo dragons, so literally all the way there. It was amazing. 
evening. We went to Madagascar and lived on a beach with the lemurs. Have you ever seen oh a lemur? Oh, my goodness. Have you no, ever seen not a in real oh, life. Oh, oh you got to go. Go to go oh, see I would love to. Got to go and see lemurs. We went, we went to Greenland, where the glaciers, where we looked all about climate change. We're all studying climate change we go along. We've been, of course, to Antarctica, um, which, again, is one of the greatest, the greatest trips ever. We went to Finland. Well, have you ever seen the Northern Lights? I have been lucky enough to see them on one night in Iceland. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that's not the real thing. They were very, very faded. Exactly. They weren't, they weren't bright. Exactly. I went three times to Iceland and failed to see it. So I said to my inspiring expedition guy, we, Atari and I, are going to see the Northern Lights. I want to find the best time, the best place, and we'll go for five days. And if you don't show me the Northern Lights, you're fired. He said, fine. <laughs> <laughs> so he came back and we did this amazing trip into Finland. We arrived in a private plane. We could give an arm. The, you know the ice ice machines to get on drive skidoos skidoos um, skidoos got on that had all of our equipment all pre-planned pre-measured got on that so you're comfortable went to this amazing lodge amazing chefs all the wine had been flown in and we did this uh, like like a like a like an army but Abercrombie and Kent style five star army and we did all oh my god tra- sign me up to that army oh it was so great and every night we three nights out of four it was like from the horizon, from one side to the other. It's totally oh. extraordinary. All right, so we did that, and in the end, we had a we had a like a like a gorilla course that you had in the in the last test. You had a lighter mat, had a lighter stove. You had to find your way, and the last course was you had to jump in an ice hole. Did you <laughs> take off all your clothes, leave your leave your underclothes on, and jump in, freezing cold? <laughs> And so we were the only team that did it. All the rest stopped doing that, so we won. Yay. Uh, <laughs> Atari just jumped in. Pom. Then in a sauna or just No, no, sauna. Oh, then straight to a sauna, of course. Yeah, good. Oh, wow, <laughs> freezing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then, but more recently, what we did before this took place, we did a helicopter trip all over Ethiopia. And that has to be one of the great landing those helicopters in those mountains and going all the way down to the lowlands, you know, and seeing the sulfur springs and the lowest place on earth and all the churches in the mountains. Yeah. That's going down to the, the border with Sudan and seeing the completely unspoiled tribe. That actually is one of our great. So these are all my hidden gems. But one coming up is, which I want to do, all right, which I really want to do. Uh, and I'm going to, actually, I want to fly in an American fighter plane and take off and land it with a pilot, of course. On an aircraft carrier. Oh, God. That sounds that so would terrifying. Be really cool. Yeah, I've done the I've done the English electric lightning plane in South Africa, which went to the edge of space. The edge of space. So how does that work? That got you to the edge of the earth. You could actually see the earth about fifty five thousand feet high, and it went it went one minute vertically called the English electric lightning. And sadly, the pilot I did it with was killed a, a year later. Um, all the hydraulics jammed, and um, he had to he had to crash the plane. Oh my gosh! Uh, yeah, it's in my book. It's in my book. English electric lightning. That was an amazing trip. Wow! So much so that I decided I couldn't market it, and I was right. Like a year later, uh, it was very hairy. We took on over five Gs. Uh, it was 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 quite. But now I want to go and do take off and land on an aircraft carrier. That, that'll be really good. And sorry. Uh, and by the way, one thing we, which anybody could do, we're doing this December. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're going Northeast Passage on a boat in August. Then October, we're doing a round-the-world trip 
with extraordinary places like Benin, Eritrea, and other super places, uh, Cappadocia, and oh, uh, you know, extraordinary places. Yeah. And look at the artillery. And then in December, this is a trip I've always wanted to do. We're taking a normal, we're taking a normal ship which has on it a submarine, but a serious big submarine, right? Yeah. We, we, the client, like only eight of us can go, max, eight, ten. We take a luxury yacht, super, super yacht, with the chefs and all the cooks and the diving and the dive masters. And we follow, and we take like four days, and we leave Costa Rica, and we go to the Cocos Islands, all right? This is the gem I've always wanted to do. Oh, I've and never even heard of them. No, very hard. You can't get there unless you come as Jeff we can. That's the only way to do it. So, yeah. so we go to the Cocos Islands where we dive in the submarine and we do normal diving for about three days and then come back. That's, that is my hidden gem, which I haven't done. Wow. What adventures to come. <laughs> exactly. Incredible. Well, chapter six, in contrast then, is your worst travel experience. I imagine you have had some pretty hair-raising experiences along the way. Do you want to hear the ones where I'm always dead or nearly dead or approximately <laughs> dead? Or? <laughs> <laughs> there, there are multiple ones to pick from. Yeah, well, <laughs> the hairiest trip definitely was um, back in the, <clears throat> in the 70s when I went to Sudan, southern Sudan. In between one of the big wars, they had wars all the time. I think they could be at war again now. Anyhow, I drove up all the way from Nairobi, all the way up through the. There was no road. We t we took maps and we went. To, uh, I took a, a, a professional hunter who knew the tracks very well with him and his and his bearer. And we finally we went past Lokichogio, which is in Lake Lake Turkana to the west of Lake Turkana, into the Sudan that way, all the way up to Juba. <clears throat> we got attacked on the way, and we got away with that. Well, this is a long story. We, we got there, but when I got there, <clears throat> I found that we had booked a we booked a trip with another company, and that other company, for whatever reasons, had lost their license. And so they said, "No, you can't do the trip." I said, "No, I paid all the money. I've come here. I want to go and look. For, uh, we're looking for the for the white-eared cob migration. All right, there's a big migration called the white-eared cob migration, and there are the biggest elephants in the world at that stage. They were all over 100 pounds. Most of them were over 100 pounds. And so, and we wanted to pioneer, like I'm telling you now. This is um, what I wanted to do. So it <clears throat> didn't work. So I said, well, can I do So they said, yes, you can do a safari on your own. So off we went. And, and, and it was so great that I brought up a lot of the people who had already booked with the other company. Because they said, I'm there. Says, Jeff, could we come with you? I said, okay, fine. The government said yes. The regional development government said yes. And so they all came. The Radzwalls came. The DuPonts came. Had like 20 safaris up there. Right, well, probably 15 so far, going all these amazing, amazing places, right? Mm -hmm. And suddenly one day I was, I, was, I was back in I was back in America, and I was at a trade show, and suddenly I got this telex in those days, right? The telex said, "We demand your immediate presence back in Juba, because uh, uh, and please don't send anybody. We want you uh, for questioning, this, that, and the other." Uh, wow, this doesn't sound very good. What's that all about? And so um, I said, you know, I've got to go. <clears throat> and so somebody said, no, 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 you've got to send somebody instead of you. I said, no, I can't have all my clients. Oh, they put all my clients under house arrest, under tent arrest. They moved oh, the army out, so all under tent arrest. And so <clears throat> I went back there, and my pilot wouldn't fly me. He said he'd be arrested immediately because I had a little ASDIC plane, a little twin ASDIC plane, twin engine ASDIC. So I got another charter plane. I flew in there, and I, I landed. And Michael Wall, who was the regional development director, met me and took my passport with some soldiers, took my passport, 
And he said, he said, Jeffrey, you owe us a lot of money. Uh, you owe us a lot of money. And um, we're putting you in jail. And so they put me in jail. And I was there for about four or five days. In Sudan? But in, in Juba. In Juba. In Juba. Yeah. Finally let me out. And then I had to be there like two or three months while we worked out what, what they're talking about, what the money it was all to do with money. They wanted more money than we promised. Or, sorry, not promised. Then we had agreed. There were written contracts. All right. <clears throat> so this went on. So I paid an amount of money to let each client go. So I got all the clients out oh one by God. one. And so I was left in a small camp on the Nile River, um, little mobile camp with myself. And um, I said to Michael Wall, but now I'm getting on with Michael Wall. He put me under tent arrest after a bit. So I was there for about a month, two months, uh, trying to work all this out. And then he That's said, a long time as well oh, to be well, in was, a country that you weren't foreseeing having to be there. Definitely, and I couldn't go. He had my passport. Yeah. So yeah. I said to Michael, okay, now me, okay, what do you want from me? He said, well, I think you owe us, Jeffrey. We, we consider you owe us, it was a shakedown, you know, you owe us $250,000. I said, well, obviously I need to leave, so that's it. And so, so how are we going to do it? Can't bring any land. No Land Rover can get here. So that I brought my plane in, and, and um, I have somewhere in the plane a cashier's check for $250,000. And then you put me in the plane, and I'm at the end of the airstrip, not, no waiting list. And then I hand the check to you through the, through, the, through the door, and you hand me my passport, and I tell my pilot to go. And I just trust you won't have, have your soldier shoot the plane. He said, uh, Jeff, I, would, uh, I wouldn't do that. If, if the check is fine, and um, that's fine. We'll do it that way. And so my pilot came up. He, he put the check under the seat in, into a sewn thing in the seat, sewn in, which we could pull yeah. open. He stayed at the end of the thing. He revved, he revved the engines until, you know, so they were just, just he had them all running, not, not full, just medium. I gave the check. I opened the door. I handed the check out to Michael. Uh, Michael looked at it like this. It was a cashier's check. Um, he said, okay, here's your passport. I said, thank you, Michael. We're, we're on. I shut the door. He put full balls to the firewall, as they call it, when you're flying a plane. Boom. And I remember taking off, and I thought, oh, please, 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 please. It went further, 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 further. We took off over the eucalyptus trees, and I said, that's it. I'm back to Nairobi. That was the worst experience of my life. Oh, my gosh. I'm holding my breath the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> But but since then, very sadly, all of Michael Ward and all those people were, were killed. There was another insurrection. They were all slaughtered. Jeez. So, you know, if you're a pioneer like I am, you take a lot of risks. And, and that one, how he got me, he got me as a CIA agent because I had illegally brought in radio telecommunications for the camps. That's all you could work. They were called over-overs, right? Because yeah. we had no, you didn't have any, no phones, nothing in those days, no iridiums, yeah. zero. Yeah. And the only way you could communicate was with an over-over. And so I knew we weren't allowed to bring them in, but how could I run it without? So I had brought them all in the back of trucks, all right? So he said I was a CIA agent, and that's, so that, that was the chance. Knowing full well that you weren't, but that was what he was using. And they had all the, all the, all the and he said, Jeff, you signed all these forms saying you weren't bringing these in, and you did. I said, yeah, but how do I operate? You want the money, mm. you know, and it sort of become a chicken in the egg situation. So, so that was it. But it just shows you do have to be very careful with what you do. We're thinking about bucket list experiences now. Before we ask you what your top of your travel bucket list is, when, um, 
we've been going through a pandemic and people are thinking, right, this is the year of, or next year is the year of our, our bucket list holiday. What do you think should be at the top of people's bucket list? The one out of everything that you've done, that you've done already, what would you say was the most incredible that we should prioritize? Well, I mean, that's a, that's a very tough question. I think what you should prioritize is that you've got to go and see wild animals, right? You've got to go and see wild animals. Now, that could be a gorilla in Uganda. It could be the wildebeest migration. It could be either in Kenya, Tanzania, Rwanda, Uganda. That, to me, would be number one because we don't know. We have a human population that are growing so fast. You know, we will be, what are we now, 7.8 billion people today? It will be 10 billion by mm-hmm. 2040 or something, or 2050. Um, and the only people who suffer the animals. The wildlife suffer. And, you know, even in my lifetime, when I was born, there were two billion people. It's hard to comprehend. And so I think wildlife and, and, and everybody loves a safari. You know, <laughs> the mother loves it. The kids love it. Even I've already, you know, I got married again. I've had young kids. I took them age three and they're looking and saying giraffe. They love it. Everybody loves a safari. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think. That would be my number one thing, yeah. Definitely. So then finally, we're on to chapter seven, the final chapter of your travel diaries, Jeffrey, and that is the destination or the trip that is at the top of your bucket list. I know that there can't be that much left. I add new places. Mm-hmm. I want to visit it. Before I visit the Maasai Mara, where my dad is buried and mum is buried, I have to go to every place in the world, okay? There's one thing that, that's top of my bucket list, all right? On top of the other... On top of the buckets, on the buckets, on the buckets, <laughs> <Yes>. right? <laughs> New buckets each each year. Yeah. The one trip I haven't done is the Northwest Passage. Mm-hmm. I booked it twice. It's a long trip, but I've always longed to do it. So where does that go through? You go past west of Greenland, all the way up there, and then across Alaska. Is that a very hairy stretch of water? Yes, it is. Yes. And sometimes you can't get through. Right. Ice comes and blocks you off. Yeah, but that I want to do because all the early explorers did that trip, right? And I've actually been to the, I've been to the North Pole. I've done that, um, which is another very hairy trip. South Pole, really hairy trip. <laughs> and now the other two great explorer one, Northeast Passage, which I'm about to do, and the Northwest Passage. Then I've done. Then I've just about done everything. Then I don't know. Then I'll ask you for a lunch in Monaco, and we can go. We can go to the yacht club and have a nice afternoon. That sounds wonderful. What a pleasure, Jeffrey Kent. Thank you so much. Those were your travel diaries. What an honour to speak to you. Thank you. And a pleasure speaking with you too. Wow, what a story and what a conversation. That was Jeffrey Kent, the founder, CEO of Abercrombie & Kent. You can follow Jeffrey on Instagram at Jeffrey with a G underscore Kent. Thank you so much for listening today. If you're enjoying the podcast, don't forget to hit subscribe on your podcast app so that you're updated with a new episode each week. And if you can't wait till next week or if you're new to the podcast, remember there's the first three seasons to catch up on from Michael Palin and Rick Stein to Dev Patel, Poppy Delavine and Richard Branson. To find out who's joining me next week, come and follow me on Instagram. I'm at Holly Rubenstein. I would love to hear from you. I love reading all of your messages and share your own travel diaries using the hashtag the travel diaries. I'll be resharing your hidden gems, your recommendations and all time favorites on my Instagram and here on the podcast later in the season. Thanks again for listening and I'll be back next week.
Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travellers just like I do. Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 